Welcome to Fernway Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Fernway Insights is brought to you by Fernway Group, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Fernway Group, please visit our website at fernway.com. Hi everyone, my name is Shekhar Varanasi. I'm the CEO of Fernway Group. Welcome to Fernway Insights. Our guest today is Mr. Bill Johnson, President and CEO of WellBuilt, a position that he's held since November 2018. Before joining WellBuilt, Bill was the CEO of Chart Industries, which is a global manufacturer of highly engineered equipment for industrial gas, energy, and biomedical industries. From 2006 to 2016, he held various senior level positions at Dover Corporation, which as many of you know, is a, is a global industrial company. Before joining Dover, Bill was the president and CEO of Graham Corporation, publicly traded manufacturer of oil refining, petrochemical, and power equipment. And before Graham, he held senior positions at other industrial companies, like ESAB. And Bill began his career as a commissioned officer, nuclear engineer in the United States Navy. He holds a BS in ceramic engineering from Alfred University and an MBA from Rollins College. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're very excited to have you and looking forward to talking to you about a range of things, including your journey at WellBuilt, as well as other, other companies that you worked at. Thanks, Shaker. Happy to be here today. Awesome. So let's start maybe with the, with the most recent role you've held, Bill, which is the CEO of WellBuilt. Tell us a little bit about what WellBuilt does. Tell us a little bit about the company itself. Yeah. Well, it's a public company, uh, about a $1.6 billion public company that's in the food equipment space. It, uh, it's split between about 60% hot side, which is ovens, grills, fryers, cook and hold cabinets, combi ovens speed oven, and then the cold side, which uh, is ice machines, Manitowoc ice machines, is a particular brand, the prep tables and, and beverage, different beverages. We go to market through dealers and buying groups, uh, about 60% general market, and the other 40% is global strategic accounts like McDonald's, Burger King, Chick-fil-A, those types of brands. So it's in a sale process right now, but we hope to, to have that finished by the uh, by the end of the second quarter or so. Tell us a little bit about that the deal, Bill. Uh, you know, Bill, as, as as some of our listeners might might know, WellBuilt was sold to Ali Group from Italy. What was the strategic rationale for the deal? What does it mean for the industry going forward? Well, you know, it was, it was a deal that came about as uh, COVID, after COVID hit the you know, the mar the markets were hit pretty hard and the restaurant markets were all down. There was a lot of chaos in the marketplace. You know, the markets are now recovering, but it, it lended itself to a consolidation of the some roll ups. And so Wellbuilt was is being acquired by Ali Group, which has about eighty brands of its own and the eleven brands that we have, it's a good strategic fit for Ali. The our presence in global strategic accounts, the bigger accounts like the McDonald's and Chick-fil-A, gives Ali a presence there that they don't have. They're more of a general market type of business. So the combination of the two coming together is, will create the largest food equipment company in the world. 
Awesome. You, you know, you mentioned you mentioned COVID, and obviously, COVID created a lot of turbulence in the industry. Right. I remember when when COVID hit, a lot of the restaurants shut down. How did that impact your business, Bill? What were what were some of the the challenges you had to face in the in kind of the near term when COVID hit? Yeah, so it, it was it was a pretty big hit to the, the entire food equipment space. Every every one of our end customers, whether it was in-house dining, casual casual fine dining, hotels, convenience stores, fast food chains, everybody for the first quarter or two took a tremendous drop and 50-60% of their revenues dropped, which obviously had an effect on on manufacturers of equipment like well-built and our revenues dropped. So we had a fairly leveraged balance sheet. So one of the things that we had to really look at was to address our bank covenants to make sure that we had headroom under there, which we did very quickly. And we're able to maintain liquidity, uh, a good liquidity position throughout the whole pandemic as a result of uh, a number of cost containment actions. And, and our culture is one where we're very family-oriented, very friendly environment. And every one of my senior executives and VPs took a voluntary pay cut anywhere from 25 to 50% of their pay for a period of time so that we could keep as many people on the payroll and benefits as possible throughout COVID. And so we were able to keep a lot of people just helping them get by till the, the pandemic kind of subsided and, and revenue started to recover a little bit. We had to fight hard. It was not, it certainly was not easy. You know, when your revenue drops 50% overnight, you have to do a lot of things that you, none of us have ever had to do before because I mean, none of us have seen this kind of situation happen. And we had to idle plants. In addition to, you know, just pure safety protocols, making sure everybody was safe as possible and, and get PPE. You know, you remember back when it first started, it was hard to get masks and it was hard to, there was a lot of confusion in terms of what should you be doing and what shouldn't you be doing. And so, you know, we're real proud of the way that our folks fought through it and came back to work and, and the industry's now recovered quite a bit. We're just, we're about to back to 2019 levels now. Then of course you have all the supply chain issues and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later too, but that's hitting everybody hard right now. COVID was a pretty big shock to the industry, to every manufacturer of equipment. And we've all survived and we all kind of, everybody kind of knuckled down and, and chipped in and contributed, whether it was the end users or the, the dealers or the manufacturers or the people in the businesses. Everybody everybody gave in a little bit to for the good of the whole. That's a, that's a great segue into my next question, Bill. I was going to ask you about supply chain challenges because what's the how, how is the situation today you mentioned supply chain challenges which obviously is impacting most industries there's also a lot of labor shortages right especially in the u.s which is impacting all the all the the food service chains so what's the state of the what's the state of the sector today from your vantage point yeah so i mean there are shortages everywhere, you know, and 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 every product line. Electronics is particularly difficult right now. Uh, microchips and things like that. Luckily for us, you know, we developed a common controller 
several years ago and we're rolling that out and we were able to pre-pandemic we we ordered a pretty large stockpile of these common controllers for our rollout so we were in a pretty good position from that perspective but it certainly is still a challenging when you know you call an electronic supplier and they tell you they have a you know, 96 week lead time you know to, to get components and parts your price is double what it was, you know, a month ago. It's a challenging environment. Every, everything in the supply chain, not just electronics, all the metal parts, metal prices are going up. Freight is going crazy in terms of gas prices, diesel prices, surcharges. And, you know, we are we're having to do things that we just, just are not normal for us. And that has not been normal for any industrial business. That's multiple price increases in a year, surcharges, applying price increases to backlogs or on orders that had already been placed because, you know, they aren't, weren't going to ship for 90, 120 days and you're upside down on that order if you don't, you know, get, get some pricing on it. So it's been a highly unusual and difficult environment for everybody, for customers, for manufacturers to try to maintain some level of normalcy. But and I and I don't see it kind of going away anytime soon. And you know, it certainly feels like it's here to stay for another few quarters at least. And hopefully, we can start to see it subside after that a little bit. But we're still in the thick of it right now. No, Bill, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of companies are struggling with this, and I don't know if anyone has really figured out how to deal with this because it's just so unpredictable. But for just from your experience, maybe what are the one or two things that you feel you're doing differently today versus before in terms of how you procure things, how, how you think about inventory levels and working capital? You mentioned pricing. Yeah, but we were fortunate. We had started a transformation program pre-COVID. And, and we, yeah, during that transformation process, you know, one of the things that you do is you go out for quotes and RQs and re Try to get money from your supply chain. That's kind of gone right now. It's you know you're you're not able to. You're just lucky if you get parts. You know at any price, as opposed to trying to get suppliers to to give you price reductions. You know because they're feeling the same. They're having the same problems that, that we are. But what we were able to put in place was the value add value engineering process during the COVID time period, where we saw that we weren't going to be able to kind of traditional supply chain management and we flipped our engineering resources to where we started redesigning components and parts to take cost out and products as a way to de-feature some things and and or get multiple suppliers right you know if we were single sourced on a component we we redesigned it so that maybe we could have two or three different suppliers to give us the flexibility and that's proved to be very fruitful for us during these times and actually allowed us to continue, you know, to get some cost reductions, you know, to help offset some of the price increases. But it's with redesigning of uh, parts and pieces. And then, you know, you have to understand pricing. And if you don't understand it and you don't have analytics around your pricing, people looking at that on a daily basis now, you're, you're behind. And one of the things that we try to do is hold the line on price increases coming to us, just like our customers try to do to, to us when we give price increases. And that hold the line 
is a whole process in terms of, you know, if you, if somebody wants to give you a price increase, that has to go through multiple levels of uh, approvals and design, design reviews and things like that to, before we accept it. And we'll push that to the limit. And that's been helpful as well. So I think, you know, if I would give anybody any advice, it would be, can you redesign your, your product or components in your, can you make sure you're getting their accurate pricing and all the inputs they need to, to know what your actually, your costs are so that you're, you're getting the right amount of margin. Those would be the, the, the two things. No, I think those make a lot of sense, Bill. I think, you know, I think it's obviously easier said than done. You, WellBuilt has done a terrific job of actually implementing a lot of these practices and maintaining both business continuity and actually continuing to improve its performance. Now, even before COVID, there was a lot of buzz in this sector, right, about all kinds of technology disruptions. There was you know, cloud kitchens or ghost kitchens, as different people call it, emergence of platforms like DoorDash or Uber Eats, smart kitchens, IoT-based solutions. What happened to some of these trends? You know, what do you think will happen going forward? Did COVID accelerate some of these trends? Did COVID you know, put a, put a brakes on, on. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think it certainly changed the way, you know, some of these end users are looking at their businesses, right? So we saw actually people like Chick-fil-A, their business go up during COVID times, right? Their revenues go up because, you know, they digitized and, and did more in terms of their apps and how people can order food and pick up food and, and so they, they really put a lot of effort and time into thinking through that whole delivery process, how you can safely get people food without having them ask you to physically go into their kitchen. And if you go to a Chick-fil-A now, they, there'll be cars wrapped around it two or three times, and it still only takes you five minutes to get through. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, their, how they let people pay and how they have people in the parking lot taking orders. People can do the DoorDash. People can order ahead and you know, go to a parking spot and pick up their food. So there's holding cabinet designs that we're doing for some customers, some innovation where you order the food and they cook it in their kitchen and then they put it in this holding cabinet. And then from the exterior outside, you have, you have your phone and you can open the cabinet with the code, with the barcode and pull your food out and you know, you're, you're not touching any, no human beings are coming into contact with each other. There's a lot of that going on. And as you said earlier, one of your comments was labor shortages. And certainly the food food equipment or food suppliers, the McDonald's of the world and Chick-fil-A's and Burger King's are having trouble attracting workers. And so they need more productivity. So it's how can we make their kitchens more productive? And that's where our, some of our innovation on like Kitchen Connect, where we can analyze pieces of equipment and data and do data analytics on flow of information, like a fryer, for example. When was the last time it was cleaned? Does it need cleaned? How many hours a day is it operational? It gives the, the, the people running the kitchens a lot of information in terms of how efficient their products are or their, their equipment is. We can do some predictive maintenance and things like that. So the Kitchen Connect side of things and the automation in the kitchen is really at its infancy, but it's being driven by the fact that there, it's 
labor is hard to find and it's expensive. And so and the cost to retrain people constantly is it's really high. So I think you're seeing, you know, particularly the global strategic accounts work hard to get more digital and take more people out of the kitchen and do more automation. Bill, it was very interesting as you were, as you were talking about this. It, it felt to me like, you know, companies like Wellbuilt are transitioning from being traditional industrial companies to industrial technology companies, right? Just given the amount of technology that's going into your product. From your experience, you know, what does it take to make that transition successfully? How do you think about talent and capabilities going forward, right? Because it's clearly very different from what was needed before. Yeah, so it's a really different skill set. And, and, you know, I think, you know, we made every mistake you can make trying to get where we are today. Years, years of trying different things. But what we've learned is, is that it is a completely different skill set than the guys that are designing equipment. It's, you know, software engineers, it's people who are really knowledgeable on uh, hardware integration of these hardware, software, cloud, all the different components that go into, you know, a connected kitchen. And talent is, I think, the number one thing. You know, we were fortunate to find someone who has a vision for what customers want and, and how to achieve it. And, and what you have to do, what you have to figure out, because it can be a huge money pit if you if you're not careful, but you have to figure out what you're good at and what you're trying to accomplish. And then you have to bring on partners to help you achieve that, whether it's cloud, hardware, software. And then you have to manage it very tightly. So like I have a review every couple of weeks with my digital team just to, to make sure that we're, we're delivering what we said we would deliver, where we're going and any issues that come up. Um, because it's a lot of money and it, it gets spent really fast if you're not careful and you end up with not having anything that the customers really want, right? So I, I like to see lots of customers coming in, giving us input, lots of applications working. And then we have metrics where we look at what is how much of our how many pieces of equipment are connected to the software so that we can monitor and provide analytics capabilities. So again, I think the whole industry is at its infancy right now, but it's it's it certainly is changing and it's going to continue to change and it's not going to go backwards. That's fantastic, Bill. I'm looking forward to the day when I can just program my microwave to <laughs> cook my favorite <laughs> dish <laughs> instead of having to try myself. Let's switch topics a little bit. Talk about yourself. As I mentioned before, you started your career in the United States Navy. And how did you, you know, as a, as a nuclear engineer on submarines, from what I understand, now, what was that experience like and how did you make the transition from Navy to the industry and how did the Navy experience and learnings help you in your career? Yeah, so, you know, I was a young guy when I went into the submarine service. It was really difficult. It was a couple of years of postgraduate work in terms of nuclear engineering and studies and then five years of being on board a nuclear submarine with 150 guys, you know, kind of trapped underwater for 120, 110, 120 days at a time. And, but, but you, you learn a lot, you grow up a lot. And, but what you learn is how to get along with people, you know, imagine 
locking yourself in your house with your, you know, your whole extended family for 120 days. It's, it's, you either kill each other or you have to learn to get along, right? So, so you, so we learned, you learned a lot of coping skills and you didn't have to like everybody, but you had to learn how to deal with different personalities and, and everybody's life depended on everybody doing their job, right? It wasn't, it, there was no joke, you know, and you're out in the middle of the, the ocean and you're sleeping and your buddy's on watch, you know, he's, he's, he's got to make all the right calls to make sure that you get back home. And so from that perspective, it gave me uh, a lot of process orientation, a lot of quality control background and, and belief and, and different quality metrics and, and then just how to judge people and work with people, all kinds of people, you know, and it, it was just really invaluable when you start getting into the industrial equipment business and the industrial side of things and you're managing people and processes. And, and I actually, the first job I had out of school, I didn't, or out of the, the Navy, I was plant manager and I didn't know how to organize it. And I just organized it like submarine and, and it worked and kind of went from there. But I've done a lot of turnarounds in my situation over the years, different situations and probably a dozen turnarounds. And everybody, everybody's like, wow, it's a pretty stressful environment. And my, my retort to that is you don't know stress until you're, you know, a couple thousand feet under the ocean and uh, driving around. That's stress. This is, this is uh, enjoyable work. So that's kind of how I got to where I'm at. I came out of the service. And went to work for ABV, and I spent 10 years there. Switchgear, circuit breakers, and transformer businesses. And then, as you, you alluded to in my introduction, there's different industrial segments. But uh, all along, it's, I, I like being where we're making stuff, and I like the industrial equipment businesses. I like the people in the industrial equipment businesses. I like being able to walk out on the shop floor and talk to folks and interact with people. You know, it's kind of a, just a blue collar kind of mentality. I really like that about the different industries, industrial groups. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but the common theme across all of these different roles you've had is transformations and turnarounds, right? That's the kind of the, you, you brought, you've gone into situations that needed fixing and you've done a fantastic job of actually turning these companies around and making them much better than when you came in. What are maybe the top three or four learnings from that, you know, from doing a bunch of, you said, a dozen transformations or turnarounds? Yeah. So I think the the first thing is that you got to have big ears, you know, you got to go in and you got to listen to people. Every business I've went into, they know how to transform. They know what needs transform. They don't know how to transform. But, you know, you were at McKenzie for a long time and, you know, people paid you a lot of money to come in and listen and ask questions and put together, you know, plans. Well, you got to do that when you go in as a CEO too for a new company. You got to go in and listen and take take stock of the people that are there and value what they have to say, and and they'll help you with the roadmap. They'll give you the roadmap, you know, for for what you need to do. And then you need to move fast, and you need to move faster than you think that you can and should, both on people and processes. You know, one of the mistakes that I've made over the years and I've learned through different transformation efforts is and even at Wellville, uh, you know, you, the latest one, you improve the process and then you take the labor out of it is kind of how everybody does it. And what it, what happens is it becomes really difficult for the 
local management to take those people out once they make the process improvement. So they just move them somewhere else. You don't actually save the dollars that way. You just, you're just moving them around the factory. What I like to do is I like to go in and take, you know, 20% of the people out of uh, a line and then do the transformation process with the remaining people. And then it tends to stick more. And, and, you know, people can say, well, that, that's, you know, that may be dangerous, but I've learned over the years that you can take 20, 30% out of any process pretty much. And, and you're not going to break it. It's, there's that much just extra built into everything that we do. And I don't care what process that you pick, we, they can always be streamlined. And so I think that's, that's a big learn lesson learned that, that after doing this for 30 years, probably the, the single biggest thing is be fast, get the people out before you make the process improvements and then make the process improvements and then they'll stick. And then you'll have your cost savings to do to, to get there. And then, you know, hire really good people, hire the talent. Don't be afraid to, to upgrade talent because you need you know, for better process control and better processes, you need good talent. And you got to get rid of the people that are going to block you from, from improving the business. And you know, that's, I got tons of stories of that over the years where, you know, made changes and there's creative ways to do it. But in, in all cases, it was the right thing to do. I'd say those are kind of the, maybe the main two or three lessons learned in transformation. That's uh, very interesting, Bill. And maybe just maybe zooming in a little bit on the latest one that you mentioned, WellBill. It's a big company, global company, lots of different brands, lots of different locations. How do you as a CEO keep tabs on what's going on, how the transformation is going across all of these different sites? What's the process like? Yeah, so I think, you know, that's evolved over time as well. I think the most important thing I can say is you have to be present. You have to be at the meetings. You know, a lot of times I see senior leaders who say they're on the steering committee or their oversight committee or they're, you know, up, they're getting an update, but then they, they don't show up for the meeting or they, they're multitasking or they're not on the Zoom call at all, or they're only on for 10 minutes and they leave. And those actions send a message to the organization that, that you know, this is this transformation process is it's not important to you, then it's not going to be important to them. And I can tell you that for two plus years, I haven't missed the steering committee meeting at Wellville. And, and I, they, and they're, you know, they go three, four hours in some cases because, you know, you're going through every brand and every business. And you're doing it, now we do it on a monthly basis, but initially we were doing it every week or to make sure that people got the message. And so I think the most important thing is is leadership team has to show up. And if you show up and you you prove that it's important by paying attention, asking questions, giving your input, then your organization will take it seriously. If you don't, they won't, and it'll eventually just die. Then the other thing that you have to have is you have to have somebody and typically it's the CFO who's the scorekeeper, right? And, you know, you can't just have the business unit manager saying, oh, I saved a million dollars here, a million dollars there. If it's not showing up in the P&L, we didn't save it. And it, it just got moved somewhere else. And so, you know, I, I rely heavily on our CFO to make sure that 
that he's done all the the accounting necessarily necessary to make sure that the numbers are showing up in the margin numbers and the bottom line. So I think those are the important lessons for driving a transformation process. If you're not going to do that, then don't start one because you'll just spend a bunch of money and go nowhere, which you've probably seen, you know, over the years with McKenzie with different successful implementations and not successful implementations. No, absolutely. I think at McKinsey as well as now at Fernway, I think one of the one of the other challenges that we see with companies is that they can keep up this momentum for a couple of years and then things start sliding again. So I guess the question to you is how do you transition from a transformation program to ways, you know, kind of just the regular way of doing business? How do you take some of these practices that you've launched during the transformation program do they become a, the way of doing business going forward how do you make sure that the impact is sustained over time yeah and again i think that you you got to have a good scorekeeper here and make sure that, that the the improvements are hitting the business but the processes that you're putting in place for those two years are your processes you got to make sure that they get embedded in the business you know whether it's the way we measure productivity efficiency the way we track supply chain uh, improvements or supplier cost reductions. And you got to have that part of your, just part of your DNA, right? So I broke part of the transformation reviews up into a couple of different segments. One, just to look at purely supply chain and suppliers. A 30-minute meeting once a month with every business unit to talk about suppliers and price increases and what we're doing on VAVE and those types of things, right? And again, it's, it's part of the DNA now, right? It gets built into their budgets, but it's not just a number in the budget anymore. Now it's a series of projects in the budgets that, that you know, hey, here are the 10 different initiatives we're going to work on to achieve, to achieve a million-dollar cost reduction, not yeah, we're going to achieve a million dollar cost reduction. We don't know how. We and we typically like to see the funnel one and a half times the number. So if they have a million dollar cost reduction in their budget, we like to see them working on a million and a half dollars worth of opportunities. Because things fall out and fall by the wayside, and we want to make sure they hit the the number. So we we typically like to see enough projects that will get a get us at least fifty percent more and. In some cases, we're positively surprised when we get we get more than what we budgeted for because of that. So I think that's that's the key. Those are the keys. Understood. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to switch kind of topics again. Tell us a little bit about what you like to do outside of work. How do you blow off? <laughs> what do you what, what do you do? Yeah, well, it's over the years I've I've tried different things. I tell people I'm a recovering engineer because I wasn't very good as an engineer. But I, I play I play a little bit of golf, but I do a lot of big game hunting, and so I like to uh, travel the world and see different places, hunt different uh, terrain, whether it's Alaska or the Northwest Territory or Mexico. I like to see the world that way. So. Fascinating. You know, I've never tried my hand at hunting, but <laughs> I've seen Bill some <laughs> of the pictures that you've posted online and in other places, and and clearly you've had a lot of success at, at that. So. Looking forward to. Well, I'll take you on a trip. I'll take you on a trip someday, Shaker. Uh, looking forward. Hopefully, not get you eaten by a bear. I will. I'll stay close to you, so make sure I'm safe. So to close here, Bill, maybe come back to your career for a, for a second. You've had a fascinating career, a very successful career. 
many prestigious industrial companies. What's next for you once well built is is if the transaction is done? Yeah, so you know, I'm fortunate. I'm at that point in my life where it's about I get a chance to give back to people and help people be successful. So I, I think I'm in the, my prime in terms of being a CEO and the things that I do and what I've learned over the years. I'm fortunate enough to be in a financial position where I can work with the people I want to work with and do do what I want to do with the people I want to do it with. And so for me, I think, you know, I have more on at least one more run than me as a CEO and doing a, you know, a stint with either a private, probably a private equity group and, and working with a bunch of people that can benefit from my experiences. Excellent. Well, on that note, thanks again, Bill, for joining us today. What you've shared is, is truly fascinating. Hopefully, our, our listeners will take away a lot of interesting learnings from, from this discussion. So really appreciate your time. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Shaker. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Fernway Insights. Please visit Fernway.com for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector.